Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Gardening is a specifically human endeavor. It is a characterizing feature of our species, fairly well documented throughout our evolution, which fascinates me. And each of us come to this endeavor for our own reasons and needs, sometimes very practical, sometimes very aesthetic, sometimes spiritual, sometimes playful. Our gardens are like some larger version of our very fingerprints. Today, Cultivating Place welcomes a home gardening member of the so-called millennial generation and a self-described urban homesteader. Despite having grown up around gardening, she did not really begin to absorb its importance and her attraction to it until her early adulthood. Today, she shares with us her journey so far, some of the lessons and highlights, her first experience leaving an established garden, and the opportunities presenting themselves to her in her new garden. I'll let her take it from here. My name is Melissa Kaiser. And I am 33 years old, and I live in Sacramento, California. I write a gardening and urban homesteading blog, and I do some freelance writing, and then I also just started my own design, uh, landscape design business. I grew up in the mountains of Santa Cruz above the town of Aptos, which is kind of the south side of the, of the bay there, and we had 14 acres of redwoods, and I grew up without electricity, which is a really unique situation that I think definitely molded who I am today. A lot of people, you know, when I would tell them, you know, oh, I grew up without electricity, the first question they would ask is like, oh, are you Amish? And it was kind of a situational thing. Um, the My parents had bought the property, and we had plans to build a house with electricity like any other normal person. Um, and then the 89 earthquake hit, and the house we were living in was leveled, and we didn't have a place to live. And so we quickly kind of built this one-room house on the property, and it didn't have power to it. And we just never really got around to getting power to this official house that we were supposed to build. Over time, we accommodated, and I was five or so. And then I lived there until I was 18 and moved into the dorms for college. And what did your parents do? Um, my dad was an arborist. He was the head climber for UC Santa Cruz. And my mom stayed at home and raised me. And she had a large organic garden. So you definitely do come to this very naturally. I do. But as a kid, like I did not pay attention to anything my mom was doing in the garden, which now is really a shame because I have to call her with all these questions about <laughs> gardening. Um, but from a really early age, you know, I was very immersed in the natural world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on weekends, I would help my dad do tree jobs or after school, my mom would, you know, drag me around to plant nurseries and garden tours. And, you know, as a kid, I hated anything, you know, that your parents are into because, you know, that's not cool. But also, I love to read, and I'd much rather have been reading a book. I like to sit in the garden, but I didn't like to work in the garden. You know, I like to harvest potatoes, but if my mom asked me to help weed or, like, go pick some herbs for dinner, like, it was so annoying. Like, all I wanted to do was be reading my, my books. And at what age did you sort of start to come into your own as a gardener, like wanting to do it on your own? So I was, I think, 23. Um, I had my first my first house, or I guess it was an apartment. Um, you know, I had graduated college and I had moved around quite a bit and I was living in Healdsburg in Sonoma County. And I came to gardening because I really liked to eat. 
and I couldn't afford to eat out at these restaurants that I really wanted to eat at, all these farm-to-table places. And I kind of had this light bulb moment one day when, you know, I'm looking at these menus and thinking again on how much money I was putting on my credit card to eat out these places. But I noticed that they would list the farms that they were getting their ingredients from. And I kind of had this moment where it was like, well, if I could grow this produce and I can cook just the same quality meals. And so I, you know, started started a garden essentially. And my boyfriend at the time and we moved to an apartment that had a bigger yard. And with the permission of our landlord, we removed the lawn that was mostly dead anyways. And we put in some raised beds and we built a little chicken coop and got a couple hens. And that was kind of the start. And once I started growing some food, I wanted to grow more and more food. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of escalated from there. Yeah, that first um, garden that you fall in love with. Where did you go to school and what did you study? So I went to UC Santa Cruz in Santa Cruz there, um, and I studied environmental studies. Mm-hmm. Um, they say people who study environmental studies is like one of the only degrees that people go into knowing what they love, but they have no idea what they're going to do with their life. Like <laughs> They don't go in with a career in mind. And I always loved being outside. I loved the natural world, and I really liked um, learning and teaching about it. And so I um, decided to be a naturalist. And so after I graduated, I worked a um, variety of places throughout the state doing environmental education, um, some at outdoor schools, some for corporations doing education aspects of their programs. You are 33. You have had the gardening bug for about 10 years, um, even though it's been all around you your whole life. How many gardens have you had in that 10-year period at this point? I would say about two, and I'm kind of just now starting on my third one. Um, So after we were in that apartment garden for about three years, um, my husband, boyfriend, who when we had the apartment, we got married, and then my husband and I, when we were ready financially to kind of buy a house, I wanted more space. I loved, you know, gardening, and I had learned how to can, and I started, you know, being really involved with food preservation, and I had wanted to teach others those skills. And so my goal was to have a l- urban l- learning center where I could teach people those skills that I had taught myself. When we were house hunting, we found a place that had a half acre, and it was right in the middle of Santa Rosa, so it was a couple blocks from downtown. It's very urban, but it was still very, very country. It was in one of the unincorporated pockets of Santa Rosa, so the lots were really large. Um, so we bought this half acre that my guess is no one had been outside for probably a decade because it was almost all blackberries mm. and lots of other overgrown things. We spent about four years clearing the land and putting in irrigation systems and putting in rainwater harvesting systems. And I built a bunch of raised beds and I was able to grow almost all my own produce, really turning that into an urban homestead, a garden to support the lifestyle that was really important to me. And then in January, we actually had to move to Sacramento. My husband got transferred. And so I'm now on my third garden, and I'm just now starting starting to develop that and turn that into my own space. So a moment of quiet for what must have been a very hard move for you to give up that garden you'd spent four years creating and building. It was really, really difficult. And I Mm -hmm. think I'm still, it's been about four months now since we've moved. And I think I'm still a little bit in the grief stage and the mourning stage. It was, it was really difficult because when we bought the house, we had had the intention of that being our forever home. Like we had no intention, you know, to, to do some changes and sell it and then find another place. Like we bought it and put 
all of our efforts into it. And the house, you know, was cute. And we made, you know, we remodeled the kitchen and, and turned that into our own. But really, it was the property. And it was such a unique situation as well. Like, we were so close to town. You know, I could walk to about get ice cream or coffee if I wanted. But then, yeah, we were so rural. And it was really quiet. I just, I really poured my heart and soul into turning it into something productive. And with as much of respect as I could, you know, I constantly was battling Bermuda grass, but I refused to use any herbicides. So I would literally hand sift through the soil, pulling out the rhizomes. And I had such an intimate connection with, with the property. And so when we had to move, I was really upset because I was really worried that someone was going to come in and just pave it all over and throw a bunch of apartment buildings or they were going to come and just spray everything. Um, but we found a really great buyer who loved native plants and she really loved everything we were doing with the yard and she really wanted to continue it. So that made the process so much easier yeah. finding that right buyer. And I haven't talked with her, so I don't know what she's doing, but I'm sure she's doing great things and, you know, she's making it her own, but I'm sure that she's still treating it with respect, which I think is the most important part of that. That is so, it is so hard. I have left more gardens than I, I care to tell you. And I, I just accept that you put your heart, your whole heart into every single one of them. And each one is different. And I have learned to never go back. Pretty yeah. much never go back. <laughs> uh, she's invited, she, you know, when we, when we were doing the transactions, she had said, you know, if you ever want to come visit, you're welcome to. And, and I said, no, you know, I don't want to see it. It's the same reason my parents sold the property that I grew up on. And my, mm. my best friend, her family still owns the property next door. And even when I go visit them, like, I don't walk down the road. I don't want to see what's happened to it. Because in my head, I still have the memory of what it was that I left. Yeah. And, that, and that works fine. But I think what was so difficult about that was because we thought we were going to be there for a long time. You know, when we were in the apartment, you know, we built raised beds and we planted flowers and we even planted a lime tree. And those were all things that we knew we were going to be leaving at some point. And, you know, we were still turning the area into a more productive and beautiful space. But we had, there was already that knowledge. And so it was just a very different experience. Yeah. And, and so now in my new garden in Sacramento that I'm planning, like I doubt this will be our forever home. Mm -hmm. And so already I'm approaching it as, you know, I'm going to leave it a better space than when we found it, but I won't maybe pour as much of my heart into it. Or <laughs> at least I already maybe know what to expect if we do have to leave. Right. So in the, the garden that you left, which was maybe your your first fully manifested garden design and dreams, did you produce enough food to f provide almost everything that you wanted as a household? Did you share your produce and what kind of produce were you growing there? Yeah, so I was able to grow almost everything that we used. It was very much like I would go out in the yard and be like, okay, what do I have growing right now? And that's what I made for dinner. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, find a recipe and then go find the ingredients. It was kind of the opposite way around. And I also definitely had extras. Um, and so the produce I would mostly give away to my friends. Um, we also had a lot of chickens and the eggs. I regularly had extra eggs. And so those I would either sell to neighbors and friends or I would barter. And I had a really great bartering community. And so I would trade for things that I wasn't growing. So things like citrus, I would trade eggs for or um, meat sometimes from people who had larger properties or sometimes um, I even traded for fish once. And so extra things um, I would sometimes sell, but mostly it was a bartering, bartering mm -hmm. system. 
And so the move, I am guessing, to Sacramento, so for, for listeners who aren't clear on the difference between Santa Rosa and Sacramento, talk about the different climate and um, gardening zone you were in in Santa Rosa and that that you find yourself in in Sacramento. So technically, it's the same sunset zone and the same USDA zone, which sunset zone um, 14 and I think USDA is 9B. But the climate is much different. And so Santa Rosa, it's not coastal, but we got coastal influence still. Um, The summers were still hot, but not extreme. Um, And the winters were, you know, in theory, wet when it rained. Um, In Sacramento, this is my first time being here, but I already know from just living in California my whole life that it gets really, really hot in the summer. Mm. It also seems to be much windier. Mm-hmm. We had very little wind in Santa Rosa, and that seems to be an almost daily occurrence um, here in the Sacramento Valley. And I believe that Sacramento gets less chill hours, so less frost, um, a little bit more mild temp- temperature Um, So I am excited about that because I can probably grow some citrus easier than having to constantly be covering up with frost blankets. And so it expands that a little bit. But I think mostly the heat is going to be a challenge for me. And while Santa Rosa was an urban environment, it is not the urban environment you have moved into in Sacramento. Describe that difference in some of um, what you're experiencing. So we are super urban. Um, in Sacramento, we're in the North Oak Park neighborhood. And my lot itself is much smaller. I had a half acre in Santa Rosa, but now we have a standard suburban lot, which means I have about a 4,000 square foot gardening space. Um, the houses are you know, long and narrow, and the lots are long and narrow. So my neighbor's window is about five, six feet away from my windows. Um, and so just that density is much different. Um, and also the people's, other people's yards, a lot of people still have lawns, which means they are constantly mowing and leaf blowing, which I'm having a really hard time with because of the noise. Um, I've always been very into community. And so I'm the kind of person that will knock on a door and be like, Hey, do you have an extra cup of sugar? Or like, Hey, I just moved in, wanted to introduce myself. So I like being in, in an urban environment for that because the communities are easier to build than when you're farther spaced. Um, but the noise is challenging and also the lights. And that was one thing I didn't really think about moving into town. I knew there was going to be more cars and, you know, those aspects, but the lights from just people leaving their lights on all the time in their living rooms and then they shine through my, my house and not being able to see as many stars. Those are the kinds of things that I wasn't really expecting. As much as I want to talk about your old garden, because I know it was beautiful and I have seen lots of photos of it, um, I want to focus on the future. So visually describe the garden that you moved into and its house and what you have done so far, because you have already gotten a good start on making this your garden. So the house was built in 1900. Um, I guess it could be considered a Victorian And that was one of the great appeals of it, as I do love the older houses and the character of it. And I'm sure in the 117 years, the garden has seen many different things. Don't you love that? It sort of feel like story. You walk around and you're like, somebody did that. I wonder why they did that. Like, I love that overlap. Yeah, I'm always kind of trying to figure out, you know, what the, the history of it is. There doesn't seem to be a lot of existing 
old plants or mm-hmm. things like that. So I think it has been probably redone multiple times. Um, we have a very small front yard, uh, maybe f- four feet, six feet deep or so by like 10 feet wide um, kind of patch. And that had a giant cactus and a bunch of other overgrown things, which were neat, but to me did not work with the style of the house. Um, So that was one of the first projects that we tackled was taking down this cactus. And it was great because people would walk by and be like, oh, what are you doing? And like, oh, why are you taking it out? And then other people would be like, yes, you're taking it out. (laughs) Um, The FedEx guy particularly was really excited because it was thorny and he used to like put the packages behind it. Um, So taking that out was one of the first projects that we kind of tackled. Um, Then you walk through the house and then the backyard, um, like I mentioned before, it's about 4,000 square feet. And I don't know if it was the previous owner or maybe an owner prior to her um, had put in kind of a hodgepodge collection of plants. There's a um, a lion's tail, the Leonotus leonurus, and another shrub that's just coming into leaf that I have no idea what it is. And there's some grasses. There's the Mexican feather grass, the Stipa tenuissima that I'm working on pulling out because it's invasive and spreads everywhere. And... There's a really large camphor tree, which when we bought the house, I was really excited about. But I've learned with the wind is constantly throwing down branches. So that is questionable on if we're going to keep that or not. And um, there's a couple crepe myrtle trees and a couple kumquat trees. But that's about it in terms of plant life. Um, most of the space has been just laid down with um, gravel as a mulch. I've been observing the space, trying to figure out the best use of the space. The backyard is north of the house, so it gets mostly shade. Um, There are definitely some areas that are sun, but I need to really do some careful observation to find out the best spot to grow vegetables. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the things that we have done already is we built a chicken coop. We brought um, some of our hens with us, and so I'm really excited about the coop that I that I built. It has a small footprint, but there's lots of kind of layers to it so that the, the hens have some space. And I've got some um, areas where I built a raised bed on top of the run, and so that way the chickens can go underneath, but then I have a planting space above it, and that also will give them some nice, cool, shaded areas. And then I brought several plants with me. Um, There were some things I had in containers in Santa Rosa, and so those I moved with me. I had a couple uh, poet's jasmines, which are the jasmines that are used in green tea. And so I moved those with me as well as um, we had a kumquat in a pot and a few other ornamental plants. We had a pomegranate in a pot. So those all came with us. I had also dug up and transplanted um, milkweeds. I really love um, butterfly gardening, and so I brought those with me. Which Asclepias are those? I think the Speciosa. The showy. The showy ones, Mm -hmm. yeah. I also have a couple narrow-leafed ones Mm -hmm. that I had gotten from Hallberg Butterfly Gardens in Sonoma County during one of their butterfly plant sales. Um, So I transplanted those um, from Santa Rosa, and I have just kind of stuck them in the ground in the new garden to get them out of the pots. I wanted to get those in the ground because I did see some butterflies around And I was really, really paranoid that they would fly through the yard and not have anywhere to go. So I have some um, half wine barrels that I have some vegetables growing in. I had really wanted to wait, you know, at least a couple seasons observing my site to figure out the best spot to plant things. But I couldn't I couldn't wait. I have a tomato in and a couple squash. It's definitely very small scale, but it will at least allow me to go out for a couple meals and pick something and be able to eat right out of the garden. 
Um, one of the most creative things that I think I've done is I made a gutter garden. And so there's a couple sheds in the backyard. We don't have a garage. And so there's just these sheds for storage. And so I took an old length of gutter and I drilled some holes at the end, uh, at the bottom and I duct taped the ends and I mounted them with some shelf brackets to a shed. And then I filled them with some soil and some strawberries. And we've already gotten strawberries also off of them. And they're the best strawberries I have ever grown because the roly-polies can't get to them, and <laughs> neither the slugs haven't quite figured out how to crawl up the shed over the shelf brackets and into the gutters. And so I think even when I have some permanent raised beds, I'm still going to use this vertical system for the strawberries because it's great. The advice that we are always given as gardeners and we give to other gardeners is, you know, take your time, go slowly, like wait and see where the sun is and pay attention. But it's the hardest advice to take because you just want to get out there and start digging and putting stuff in. And so kudos to you for finding a workaround. So are you doing all of these things yourself or do you work with your husband or do you have additional help? Almost all of the projects that we have done, um, both so far in the Sacramento Garden and almost everything we did in the Santa Rosa Garden, um, we have done ourselves, and we being myself and then my husband, Matt. Um, he helps me with the things that are really physically difficult for me to do. I can't always lift things um, or you know hold them and screw them together at the same time. So he helps with those on the weekends, and then during the week I do um, you know, plantings, or I cut back bushes and the things that I'm able to do. But mostly it's just us. Um, it, you know, not only really empowers us and gives us a sense of ownership of our, of our property, but it also saves a lot of money. During the week, I work outside of the home part-time when doing the garden design, and the rest of the time I'm at home and I'm working on things. So I get a lot of things done. Anything that involves painting, I do. Anything planting, I do. Um, I'm a big fan of hacking things back, and we have a lot of Algerian ivy growing mm. on the fences, and so I've been slowly working on pulling that out. Um, so those types of things I all do, I do myself. In general, I like to work in the garden um, on my own, or if I am working, you know, with him or another person. You know, we're both out in the garden working, but we don't really talk. You know, we each have our separate projects, and I think I garden not only you know to get the food and the the great things like that, but also just as um, kind of a, a healing process for me. I have really bad anxiety and I'm a highly sensitive person. And so I'm super easily overwhelmed on a daily basis. And so being in the garden and watching the bees or, you know, just observing the plant life, it's very calming to me. And so sometimes if I'm out there, you know, talking with other people, I don't quite get that aspect out of it. And when you were in Santa Rosa, did you have a strong gardening community? Were you pretty social in your gardening in some respects, or was it mostly a solitary? I think it was still a very solitary thing. I mean, mm -hmm. people, you know, would stop by and we would walk through the garden, but I never asked people to come over and help me weed or, or any activities like that. I really liked to kind of own the projects too. You know, I like being able to do things and it, it makes me feel very empowered that I can look at something and been like, I built that all on my own. Um, a lot of it too, on any of these projects that we do, a lot, it saves a lot of money. And I don't have a problem with hard work. You know, my dad worked incredibly hard as an arborist growing up. And so I have that kind of worth, work ethic installed in me at a very early age and you know there's no shame in using your hands to do things and it it really gives you a connection and, an, and a pride of ownership of what you're working on too mm -hmm. 
as a 33-year-old, you are you fit into one of these you know categories that people like to um, designate and give attributes to or assign at- attributes to. What do you think? How do you think your desire to not only garden but this sort of impulse to urban homestead to create some self-sufficiency and ownership and sustainability, even in a home and garden that you're not going to be in forever. What do you think, do you think that says anything about your broader generation? And um, do you feel that there is a, a core of you in your generation that have this same sort of it's kind of a, a, a an impulse that seems to me, as you know, in my generation, which is twenty years older, a little. It's counter to so much of what we're hearing in our culture. Like, what what does it read for you in your generation? So I am technically a millennial, even <gasps> though I even though I firmly believe I'm a lost generation since I did have a childhood without cell phones and internet, <laughs> even you know without my electricity thing. You know, my friends didn't have those things either. Um, but I am in that that age bracket, and I think some people are really surprised that I had you know an interest in these somewhat you know heirloom skills. You know, I I love to can if there's a food that I can safely put in a jar like I have, um, and I didn't learn how to can from my grandmothers. Um, you know, I taught myself when I was 22. And I definitely had a lot of friends who were still spending, you know, weekends at the mall, and that was a more enjoyable activity than, you know, growing food. Um, So I think I've always been a little bit different, but I'm definitely not alone. And I think there's a lot of people my age who are wanting a more simplified life in that they know where their food comes from and that they have a connection to something. I think the connection is a really big part of it. with so much technology, everything's really fast-paced, and there's also a very big disconnect. And I think people my age are kind of want, craving that. You know, like they say that people are wanting experiences more than stuff. And I think growing your f- own food is an experience, or you know, planting butterfly and bee plants like that is an experience. And I think that a lot of people my age too, we are very sustainably minded and we're very concerned because we know we're the ones that are going to be living in this environment or, um, you know, I do not have children, but a lot of my friends are just starting families, you know, and they're concerned what kind of environment that, that their kids are going to grow up in. And so I think I know the popular media is always showing millennials as being very self-obsessed and consumers. And I think there is that, but I think there's also a lot of us who are very concerned and want to have that connection. Mm -hmm. And very active and um, strong advocates for the, yeah, the opposite viewpoint, which is um, very encouraging to those of us in my generation for our grandchildren. Um, You have mentioned the milkweed and you briefly mentioned... um, natives in your previous garden, and you talked about bees and butterflies. Talk a little bit about how in these two different urban environments, um, you have tried to make a connection to what the natural ecosystem was, would have been, would be without 
urbanity. Um, and, you know, what if that's an important thing to you? So having a garden that encourages life is really, really important to me. And I primarily came to gardening as a way to grow food, but I quickly learned to also incorporate flowers because that attracted, you know, the the bees. And then as I learned about ways for pest management that didn't involve pesticides, then I needed to plant flowers that attracted beneficial insects. And so my garden in Santa Rosa, and I also have plans for my garden in Sacramento to be a very natural garden. And not natural in the terms that it's overgrown and not maintained, but that I plant kind of my foundation plantings in terms of the landscaping, I'll be using things like native plants that will attract um, will attract birds because they'll have berries or they'll have flowers for the native bees or for the honeybees. And then within my vegetable beds, I also intermix um, annual flowers to help with the pollinators and for the butterflies. And I really love incorporating things that have kind of a purpose, you know, so instead of a bush that just looks nice, like a bush that also will be providing something for the birds or the bees. Um, I find myself when I'm visiting other gardens, like I might look at the arrangement or the colors or, you know, the scales of, you know, all the design elements, but really what I notice on is if there's life in the garden or not. And that's the very first thing I kind of observe, like, are there bees around? Like, are there insects? You know, is the garden a life? And I think because of where I grew up, our garden was very much kind of just an extension of the woods. You know, I had all this this playground of the forest that I would run around in, and then I would also run around in the garden. It was There wasn't a very distinctive line between the two. And so I like gardens to kind of represent that. And in an urban environment, obviously, we can't go be planting, you know, giant meadows and forests and things like that. And we also don't want to mimic exactly what's out in nature, but we can take those same elements and, you know, encourage them and be planting things that are climate appropriate. And so in my Sacramento home, I'm starting to think about like, what was this land before it was built up? And I'm assuming it probably was part of the Delta and the the Sacramento River and the American River, I'm sure before there was the levees probably flowed through my area. So there was probably um, you know, maybe some of the riparian plants like the maples and the willows and the aristolochia, the pipe vine I'm kind of obsessed with. That's another plant that I brought with me from Santa Rosa. Um, so I'll be planting those types of things that, you know, would be found in the wild if that, if, if, you know, it was still a wild land. Um, not only because I hope to attract the native um, wildlife, but also because I think it gives a good sense of place and you know, I really love the Mediterranean plants as well and those colors, but I also really like the plants that, you know, are here because when I go out hiking, I see those plants and then I can see those similar plants in my garden. So it kind of makes me feel like I'm out in the wild. Give us an example of some plants maybe that you had um, in Santa Rosa if you haven't already discovered which ones you might want to start working with in Sacramento. So I never got to the point of planting a lot of the native plants that I had planned in um, in Santa Rosa. I was mostly focusing on my vegetable um, raised beds and fruit trees and like the production fruits. Mm-hmm. Um, but I 
some of the pl- native plants that I really love. I love the um, coffee berry, the yeah. ramness, um, just because in the spring it's all these tiny little flowers and the bees just love it. Love it. It, you can almost not see the flowers, but you walk yeah. by that plant and, and you it can is, hear yeah, it. Yeah. Before you see it, you hear it. And you're yeah. like, wait, where is it? Yeah. yeah. And so I'll be probably planting some of those. I also really like Toyon mm-hmm. um, for in the fall. I it's the red berries, which is a really nice um, design element for if you have kind of a boring fall garden, it brings some color and the birds eat the berries. And we can eat the berries. Not raw, by yeah. the way. You have, but to, you have to cook them. Yes, you do. <laughs> um, and so those are kind of, I think, two of the kind of foundation shrubs that I'll be using. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned before, I love the Aristolochia, which is this green vine that has these velvety heart-shaped leaves that kind of just goes wherever. And you can kind of get it to go up a trellis or you can it kind of just winds its way around on the ground. So I really hope to have it cover one of my sheds. It will. It will cover one of your sheds. And describe one of the important things about Aristolochia for you. So it's the host plant to the pipevine swallowtail, and it's the only host plant. And so there's um, this butterfly, and it's it's black with these blue and yellow spots on it. Um, it's one of the swallowtails. It's a beautiful butterfly. I see it along the river all of the time. It, comes out fairly early and you'll see it flying around and I love when I see those because then I know that there's pipe vine nearby and then it becomes like a where's Waldo hunt and I like as I'm hiking I always look for it Um, and so the pipe vine swallowtail lays the eggs on this um, on this pipe vine plant and then the caterpillars hatch and then they eat the pipe vine and then they will metamorphosize and become another butterfly and there's different pipe vine species throughout the U.S., so it's not just like a California thing. There's different varieties. But our native pipevine swallowtail, this, it is endemic to our region, and that is its only larval food source. So that, to me, is such a powerful, like, signifier of place and time. Like, you can tell where you are in the season based on what these butterflies are doing. And to watch the different, you know, to watch that little tiny round red-orange egg hatch into the first instar and then to watch that larva get bigger and bigger in each phase and there are these those black fuzzy with red spike um, they look like Darth Maul a little bit to me and they're it's just it's an amazing process yeah the caterpillars are crazy and if you like get really close to them I think it's a defense mechanism but they get these like bright yellow antenna things that pop out Um, And they're definitely very wild looking. Um, And so I really am hoping that I'll get the pipevine swallowtails will come to my yard. My plant right now is really small, so I actually hope that no one comes to it because I'm sure they would annihilate the plant super fast. Um, But last year um, in the Santa Rosa Garden, I raised about four of the anise swallowtails from um, caterpillars to release and then also um, four monarchs, which was really amazing. And um, the anise swallowtails will kind of just come to anything in that family. So I had them on my dill. I had them on fennel. I had them on parsley. And I would um, find the caterpillars, and then I would bring them inside and keep them in a in an enclosed, screened little box because if they're outside, they often get eaten by birds or other predators. And so I wanted to make sure that they made it to the to become another butterfly. So that was a really fun thing and to watch them uh, metamorphosize out of the chrysalis and then be able to, you know, put them on my hand and carry them outside and have them fly away. And 
So I hope to be able to do that still in in um, Sacramento. And so I have I have my milkweeds, and I did plant some parsley plants um, to also eat, but also in hopes that some of the swallowtails that I've seen flying around will know that they have a home in my garden. When you think about your garden in Santa Rosa, or you think about what you are hoping for in your garden in Sacramento, how do these reflect you as a person? I think that my gardens reflect me as a person because they show how much I care about the natural um, natural environment. I think anyone who came and checked out my garden would know that I definitely have a priority for not only you know feeding myself with food, but also making sure that there's a safe environment for the wildlife. Um, I will, I never have and, and really hope to, to never be able to have to use, you know, herbicides or pesticides. And I would much rather get out there on my hands and knees and have to weed than, you know, to me, take the easy way out. Um, and I love seeing the life in my garden because it reminds me that I'm able to keep a healthy environment. And the first time I saw a butterfly fly through my Sacramento garden or the first time I saw some bees on a neighbor's bush, I was so excited because I was so worried that moving to this really urban environment meant that there wasn't going to be any wildlife. And it made me so happy to see that there was life around. So I knew that the environment at least was healthy enough to, to support these things. Um, so I think that my gardens, you know, reflect me as a person because I do have that, that really strong passion for the environment and for sustainability. And so I think they reflect on my, on my practices. When you think about however long you might be in the Sacramento Garden and your sort of life as a gardener, what are your hopes going forward? So for my Sacramento Garden, I really hope that I can get a thriving vegetable garden back back up, not only to support um, my family, but also to um, share with neighbors and Sacramento, for all of the things I could complain about it, they do have some great things going for them. Um, they did just pass an urban agriculture ordinance, which means you can grow produce in your backyard and you can sell it off your porch to your neighbors. So I really hope to be part of that movement and have an urban farm stand. Um, so hopefully by next year, I'll have enough going for that. And I also just really want to create a space where I can go and sit outside and feel calmed. Um, right now, I have to, you know, get in the car and drive 15 minutes to the river or drive about an hour to go up to the Auburn area to go hiking. And so creating a space where I can sit outside and still get that healing power from nature that I rely on, um, but in my own backyard. And let's end with uh, a description of your blog. So I write a blog. It's Sweet Bee Garden. And I've been writing for five years. I started when I was in Petaluma and I started writing about the things I was doing. You know, like I had mentioned before, I taught myself how to can. I essentially taught myself how to garden because I didn't pay attention to my mom. Um, and so I was sharing all these things that I was learning because people were always so amazed that I was doing these things myself. And I think it's totally fine if people don't want to grow their own food or if they don't want to can or if they don't want to keep chickens. But I don't think it's okay that people think that they can't do it. A lot of people hear that, you know, oh, I, I canned jam and they're just amazed because 
like it seems like such an impossible skill and it's not. And so I had really wanted to share kind of my journey on learning to be um, an urban homesteader and also give information that I was learning. So I write a weekly post about sometimes there are projects that I have going on in my own garden. Sometimes it's general information, um, sometimes how-to posts uh, about gardening, about wildlife gardening, um, ecological landscaping, um, canning projects, things like that. Things to help people, you know, be connected to their own yards and how to use their harvests that they are getting. Excellent. I think the most exciting happening that I just had in my Sacramento garden is I was sitting outside and I heard this buzzing. And at first I thought it was a hummingbird and I looked up and it was a valley carpenter bee. And I have never seen this type of bee before. Um, We had carpenter bees in Santa Rosa, but they were black ones. And the valley carpenter bees, the males are huge. They're like the size of a quarter and they're a golden color. And this one was kind of hovering around and I did some research, and that meant he was probably waiting for a mate. And so there um, may have been a nest nearby. And I was so excited about it. And and he's come back several times. I don't know where he lives, but I've named him George. And, you know, I'll call my husband and be like, George is back. And he, my husband, Matt's always like, who is George? He doesn't remember. So I've named the carpenter bee. Um, but I was so excited to see him. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is good news. Good news in your garden, Melissa. Yeah. And it was so like I wouldn't have even noticed him, but it was so loud. And I thought I thought for sure it was a hummingbird, but it was just this like low buzzing noise. Yeah. yeah. And the females are black, of course. So anyone who wants to get started, you know, gardening or any of these homesteading skills, I think just my best tip would be to pick one thing. And especially with homesteading, there's kind of this thought that like, oh, for me to be self-sufficient, I have to do everything. And I kind of felt that when I first started. Um, you know, I thought I had to can. I thought I had to make cheese. I thought I had to, you know, grow my own food. And I had to brew beer. And I had to vent wine. And I had to, you know, I even once found raw wool that I washed and then started carting before I realized it was ridiculous. Um, and so just pick one thing. And so if you want to you know, learn how to can, then just pick with that. And chances are you'll start to feel really empowered and you'll want to do more things. But if you try to do too many things all at once, you get overwhelmed. And same thing with the with a vegetable garden or a pollinator garden or even just, you know, a nice landscape. If you try to do the whole area all at once, often it's so overwhelming if you're trying to do it yourself. You know, it's one thing to hire someone to come and they do it all. But if you're trying to do something yourself, you know, pick one corner or start with one raised bed. Um, so start small, I think. It's so easy to get overwhelmed. If you were going to say three things that would maybe be generally applicable to any one gardener that you would suggest they start with, what would those three things be? For flowers, I love zinnias because they attract bees and butterflies, and you can cut them and bring them inside for bouquets, and they're super easy to grow. Um, So that's one of my favorite um, annual flowers. And some of my favorite vegetables to grow, um, zucchinis are, are so easy. And there's, you know, definitely the ambiguous joke of, you know, two zucchini plants is too, too many or whatever. But my experience is you actually need to have multiple plants because in that way you have multiple flowers blooming at one time. So that way you can get cross-pollination. If you have just one zucchini plant, often the male and the female flowers aren't open at the same time. So you don't get any fruit. Um, so I always have at least three squash plants and I've learned that the best secret for overgrown zucchinis, the best way to use them 
is just give them the chickens. Like, don't try to eat them. Just give them to the chickens or put them in the compost. Those are perfectly acceptable uses for overgrown zucchinis. Um, so that's one of my favorite summer vegetables to grow. And winter vegetables, I love um, red Russian kale. Um, I really like to eat the dino kale, but I find that it is more attractive to the cabbage moss and to aphids. But the red Russian um, kale seems to be a little bit less appealing um, to those to those common winter pests, and um, I like it just as just as well. Thank you so much for being with us today, Melissa, and for sharing your journey. Listening to the story of Melissa and Matt's gardening and homesteading journey, I'm struck by a couple of things. The first being that there is very little new under the sun, but that the fun part is often part and parcel of discovering and learning some of these things for ourselves. The second thing I'm struck by is hope. Each generation of horticulturalists, gardeners, and plant lovers will necessarily respond to the prevailing social, cultural, economic, and political winds of their own moment in time. And for me, there's beauty, taste, and hope in their resourcefulness and resilience in doing just this. For the full podcast version of my conversation with Melissa, go to mynspr.org. We explore the importance of sustainability and how her love of growing food has brought her to a love of native plants and the wildlife they support. For more information and many photos, please visit jewelgarden.com. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and jewelgarden.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.